delving into our, our next lesson as we study the book of James, and we trust you've got your lesson, we trust you've got your Bibles handy as we look at the study entitled, The Humility of Heavenly Wisdom. That's lesson number eight, The Humility of Heavenly Wisdom. And for those that are joining us and uh, viewing us, we want to make sure that you, uh, you know you can call in or email in and receive the uh, free offer either on CD or DVD of these presentations. And today's offer is offer number 21447. And uh, you can call in at 916-457-6511 or you can email and give us your name and address and what, make sure you, you let us know what offer number it is. Uh, you can call 916-457-6511. It's just that easy, not too complicated, is it? Sure. Well, we're uh, excited to uh, get into our study. And by the way, again, just want to keep reminding us that if you have a question or you have a comment uh, that you'd like to make during the Central Study Hour class, you're welcome to email it at csh at saccentral.org. And uh, for those that are viewing us, you can send in your question or your comment. We'll read that for you. Those that are, are local, those that are here, uh, you get to ask it. You get to share your comment during the class. Is that okay? Uh, so uh, keep those coming. We appreciate them uh, very, very much. Well, we've got a very, uh, very special uh, study here this morning as we tackle the subject of humility, uh, coupled with wisdom and what true humi humility looks like uh, versus, versus what maybe might be conjured up in our own minds initially, uh, what we think humility might actually look like. We want to look at what Bible, uh, Bible humility is here this morning. The, uh, the author to the lesson starts out this study on Sabbath uh, Saturdays or Sabbath afternoons lesson, uh, and he talks about the concept of a min middle manager mentality. Large and small companies have these middle managers that, uh, that, that as, act as a go-between, uh, so to speak. And so he talks about this middle manager mentality, and the attitude, this is an attitude where the workers feel entitled, um, or an attitude where workers feel entitled to something they don't have. Uh, so here you have this middle management mentality where a person uh, is, is desirous of more respect perhaps or maybe a raise, uh, more income uh, or even perhaps uh, a promotion that may not be coming to them but they think they deserve that promotion. And sometimes this middle manager mentality can be revealed and can be seen in, uh, for example, flattering remarks that are made to management. Uh, how good how good the CEO is and, and the upper management are and, and in the hopes that maybe they might get their raise or their promotion. It could also, another symptom could be uh, the putting down of a fellow worker, that this particular individual doesn't do as good a job and the attempt, of course, is in putting them down, you're wanting to puff yourself up. They don't do a good job, I could do a better job, you see. This is, this is the idea, the middle management mentality. And really, really, it's a me attitude. It's all about me. Um, a major television anchor made it to the top, and it was said that he didn't leave any dead bodies lying around. Typically, when a person is scaling the ladder, looking for promotion, they're putting others down. Uh, as they're climbing that ladder of success, unfortunately, there are victims that lie strewn all along the roadway to, to that uh, successful position or promotion. And that's unfortunate. Now, 
This selfish rivalry isn't just confined, unfortunately, to the workplace. And when we study the book of James and when we look at what the Scriptures teach us, um, James is addressing this very mentality, this very issue in the church uh, in the churches that was existing in the time in which he was writing in the first century. So, I want to invite you to the book of James. We're going to jump over there again, and we're in chapter 3. Last week, we talked about taming the tongue, and, uh, and this week, we talk about humility, which is really an in, uh, the, the, the antidote to taming the tongue, because out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said in Matthew 12, the, the mouth what? speaks. We say what's in our hearts and in our minds. And uh, so, we're, we're going to talk about humility, true humility, and how this, uh, how this all looks. Let's take a look at, uh, where are going on to Sunday's lesson? The meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. And we're in James chapter 3, and what I want to do, is here, what I want to do here is read chapter th- uh, 3, verses 13 to 18. We're going to catch several days in these few verses, but I just want us to catch the context uh, before we uh, pick it apart, so to speak, as we take it verse by verse. James chapter 3, and let's look at verses 13, and we'll read right through to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy." Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so, there are the important verses that we're going to be studying here. Now, these ones we're going to be looking at over the next couple of few days in the lesson quarterly, and then we'll jump into James chapter 4 in just a moment. So, to be wise and to be understanding is obviously to be desired, according to James. Who is wise? Who who is full of understanding? you'd want the answer to be you, right? You'd want to say, well, I I am, by God's grace, I am. Um, This is contrasted in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Paul talks about those that are wise and those that are foolish. And uh, so, obviously, the desire would be that we would, God would consider us to be wise versus being foolish. Uh, Foolish is uh, is not where we want to be. King Solomon, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 12, was made, was made to be wise and had an understanding heart. And this came as a direct result and an answer to prayer. Uh, what was King Solomon's desire? Was it to be famous and to be popular and to have power and prestige? What was, what was it that he came to God and uh, asked from Him as He was about to ascend the throne? It was, it was for wisdom. It was for wisdom to be able to meet the needs and the demands of of rulership, to serve the people with an understanding heart. And as a result of that, and no doubt, some diligent effort on behalf of King Solomon, the Bible's record of him is that he was wise and he had understanding. Because he put others' interests ahead of his own. Israel, Israel was assured that the nations around them would marvel at them at their wisdom and their understanding. And you can read that in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 6. And why 
why would the nations around them marvel at their wisdom and understanding? Well, do you remember what the, the condition was in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, that they would do what? They would obey God. God said, if you obey me, if you, if you hearken diligently to me, if you serve me with all of your heart, your mind and soul and strength, then folk around you are going to look upon you as being wise and being of, oh, having understanding. These are good things to have, wouldn't you agree? So the question is here, what is biblical wisdom? What is biblical wisdom? And it's, it's closely connected and related to humility, closely related to how we conduct our lives as Christians. Genuine wisdom basically is, and we talked about this on the second week's lesson of this particular uh, quarterly study guide, uh, biblical wisdom or genuine wisdom is biblical knowledge applied. That's all it really is. Biblical knowledge applied. It's one thing to know the right thing to do. It's a completely different thing to actually do what God is asking us to do. So true wisdom is taking the Word of God and, and applying it to the life, living uh, and breathing uh, the Word of God, living that Word in our lives, you see. Uh, now, wisdom is different from knowledge. Wisdom is different from knowledge. I shared this with you before, but knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. But wisdom is knowing not to put the tomato in a fruit salad, right? So that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom makes the application of uh, God's Word. And so when we're here, we're going to just thumb through uh, these verses together. James chapter 3, verse 13, we started there. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's the desire. That's what we want. We want to have wisdom and understanding. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Let him show by good conduct. Genuine wisdom, biblical wisdom, will be shown in good works. The Bible talks about good works. Those are things that are done that benefit others, uh, that, um, that uh, help grow the kingdom of God. Good works, uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Uh, that's what it basically is. And genuine wisdom will be shown always in good works. A tree is known by what? the fruit it bears. A mother is known by her... Oh, you didn't know that one, all right. A, child, a mother is known by her child, that's right. And then what about cause? Cause is known by the effect, that's right. Cause is known by the effect. A Christian is known by his or her stellar character. We're known by the lives we live. We're known by the way we treat one another, by the way we treat others. We're known by the way we talk to others and how we interact with others. And it says here that, uh, that wisdom, that wisdom, we are to be wise and understand, let him show by good conduct. And if you have the King James Version, it probably says their conversation, right? This is the New King James, that says conversation, which just simply means conduct. Let him show by good conduct or the manner of life, by a person's manner of life. Paul, and, and this is by no means an example for us, but the Bible talks of Paul in the book of Acts, uh, and it said that his former conduct, this is him speaking of himself, he said that his former conduct in Judah consisted of persecuting the Christians. That was his manner of life, that was the, his way of life, it was his lifestyle. 
Paul, he admonishes the young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, to be an example to the believers in conduct, in the way he carried himself, in the way he conducted his life, in his lifestyle, you see. And then Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, tells us that our conduct ought to be holy. Our lifestyle, the way we live our lives, ought to be holy. And uh, synonym, biblical synonym of holiness is, is sanctification, living the sanctified life, growing in grace. And it's all by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not uh, something we merit uh, to earn our salvation. Uh, sanctification happens when Jesus is in our heart, in our lives, through the Holy Spirit, and creating this, trans- leading us to a, uh, leading us to live a life that's a little bit more like Jesus, you see. That's sanctification, holiness. So, Peter tells us that our conduct, our lives, ought to be holy. So, we're talking about lifestyle here when we talk about conduct, the way we live our lives. And then we come to an interesting word here in verse 13. Let them show by good conduct that His works are done in what? In meekness or in the meekness of wisdom, in the meekness of wisdom. What does that mean? What does that mean, in the meekness of wisdom? Now, if we were to, uh, if we were to look for another word for meek, according to the original Greek, the word would be gentle, gentleness, meekness or gentleness. Now, I want to just say this for someone's benefit here this morning, that, uh, that meekness is not equivalent to being a doormat, two different things entirely. And that's what we typically think of. If you go to your dictionary and you pull out uh, the word meek and uh, look for the definition, it basically means someone who's compliant and lets everyone else have their way. And that's not necessarily the case here. Biblical wisdom, or biblical meekness rather, is an attitude and spirit of learning. And uh, that learning at the foot of feet of Jesus, at the feet of our Savior, leads a person to treat people gently, to handle situations in a gentle manner. Meekness is not equivalent to being a doormat. It is not. The Bible says of Moses, at the time in which he was living, that he was the meekest man that was around. Question for you here, was Moses a pushover? <laughs> Pharaoh, he went into Pharaoh. Pharaoh told him, we're not going not gonna to let your people go. Did Moses say, okay, all right, if you say so. <laughs> Moses came what? Back. How many times did he come back to Pharaoh? There were 10 plagues. So there it is. He came back again and again and again. And notice his, he was no pushover. He was doing the will of God. Meekness doesn't mean that you're a pushover. Meekness doesn't mean that. He was, uh, he was not complacent. Moses, was, Moses didn't lack initiative. That's a false type of meekness. A false type of meekness excuses complacency and lack of initiative. But think about Jesus. If there was anyone who was ever meek, it would be Jesus. It was Jesus who said, who's, who's going to inherit the earth? The meek. The meek shall inherit the earth. And he was quoting from David, Psalms 37. The meek shall inherit the earth. This is an attribute, this is a trait God's people want, amen? Amen. And so we have to try to figure this thing out. Certainly, meekness is not being a pushover, but when we think about Jesus, Jesus lived His convictions and He spoke His convictions. 
And he did so, he implemented his plan in a gentle, though firm manner. We think about Jesus. Jesus was no pushover either, was he? Certainly, he went as a lamb to the slaughter. Before his shearers, he was dumb. He didn't say a word. That was his, that was his calling. His life was to be spilled out for yours and for mine. He was to shed his blood so that you and I might receive the forgiveness of sins and that we might be made to be like Jesus. Certainly, meekness involves sacrifice. There's no doubt about that. But meekness doesn't involve being a pushover. Jesus followed his convictions and he implemented his plan of salvation with gentleness, yet, yes, but with in a firm manner. He was persistent. Someone said that gentleness of spirit is most conducive to clear thinking as well as calm administration. That's interesting. Gentleness of spirit or meekness is most conducive to clear thinking as well as to calm administration. Good food for thought, isn't it? So, biblical wisdom, according to James chapter 3 and verse 13, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Biblical wisdom doesn't boast or doesn't show off its good, good works, you see. It doesn't point in this direction. We, we serve and we do what is right to give who honor and glory? Myself. Do you give your honor and glory to yourself? Pat yourself on the back? I look at the good thing that I've done. No, this is, this is to, our lives are to give glory and honor to God. And so, this is what James is teaching us here in chapter 13, that biblical wisdom doesn't show off. It doesn't uh, boast about its good works. Good deeds done in humility are the fruit of wisdom. Good, de- good deeds done in humility are the fruit of wisdom. Jesus talked about the right hand not knowing, letting the left hand know what, it, what it's doing. And that's, that's another way of talking about meekness or humility. Just doing the thing that needs to be done because it's the thing that needs to be done. God has asked us, we do it. Whatever the results or the consequences, let the, let the chips fall where they are. Let's just do God's will. And we don't need to pat ourselves on the back. It's interesting though, the way God has made us, isn't it? As you, you really can't, you're not, we really can't pat ourselves on the back too well, can we? And we can't, and we cannot kick ourselves in the seat of the pants too easily either. It's interesting the way we're made. So we've got to, we've got to, we can't be down on ourselves, but we can't be all puffed up. And, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, parents ever say, you know, you, your head's a little swollen. If, if, I, if, I, if I talk more about all the good things that, that, that you do or that you are, you won't be able to walk through that door because your head's so puffed up. That's, that's not the Christian attitude, is it? Uh, we, we do what we do in humility, we put our nose to the grindstone, we do what Christ asks us to do, we serve Him because we love Him, uh, not to get brownie points or to get other people's commendation, you see. But this was the issue, this was a, an issue in the early church and certainly it's an issue even today because it strikes at the very heart, the very selfish nature of striving nature of man. Biblical wisdom doesn't boast or show off. Good deeds done in humility are the fruit of wisdom. And this is contrasted with verse 14. Notice what it says here in verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking or selfish ambition, if you have these things in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. So men, women, kids, they become envious over promoting their special interests 
and show little regard for the desires of others. So here, James is talking about bitter envy. There's a difference, isn't there, between jealousy and envy? It's, it's, it's also very slight, but there is a difference. Uh, where, does jealousy, where does jealousy begin? Well, <laughs> jealousy, yeah, good answer. That's no, true, jealousy began in heaven, for sure. But with us, where does jealousy begin? It begins in the heart when we start coveting, isn't that right? And it leads to jealousy and it leads to envy. Envy is resentment aroused when by somebody's possessions or by somebody's qualities that you desire to have and you resent that individual because of those things that you want, you see. Covetousness is just merely wanting what someone else has. I shouldn't say merely, I mean, it's a sin, isn't it? It's really breaking the 10th commandment. Covet not your neighbor's wife, neither his, your neighbor's goods. Don't want what someone else has. Don't want what you cannot have. Just be content, is what uh, we're encouraged. Just, just be, be content. And we're told in verse 14 that this bitter envy and self-seeking is in the heart. That's right, you answered that already. It's in the heart. What we need pretty much to do on a daily basis is to have a heart examination. If, uh, if, you've, if you are called to the doctor's office, your doctor's office, and perhaps you uh, have a uh, bit of a challenge with uh, your heart that flutters, or maybe there's an issue, you're not well, and the doctor calls you, they're going to do some stress testing on your heart. They're going to plug you in, they're going to get you on a treadmill, they're going to be ch- checking to see if your heart is functioning at the capacity that it ought to be functioning at. And uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been there, you've done that, you've had your heart checked. What we need is to have our hearts daily examined. We come to the Word of God and we test our attitude and we test our motives and we test our spirit by the, by the Word of God. It's an examination. We need to test why we think the way we think, why we do the way we do things by the Word of God to make sure, by God's grace, that our motives are pure, that they're clean, you see. We need our hearts daily examined. And what, what, what is, the, uh, what, what is uh, the issue here that James brings out about a person who is a Christian, not just a person, but a Christian who is, has bitter envy and self-seeking? What happens? In the same verse, in verse 13, he says, and do not lie against the truth. Do not lie against the truth. In other words, don't betray the truth that you teach by living an inconsistent life with that teaching. Don't lie against the truth. Don't be a hypocrite. We could say it that way, right? Don't be a hypocrite. Don't say one thing and then do a completely different thing because you end up lying against the truth. And that is a problem. What happens when you're lying against the truth? What happens when your life is, is a hypocritical life? And make sure you understand properly here what hypocrisy is and hypocrisy is not. Hypocrisy is not someone who is striving to grow in their, in their walk with God, to grow to become more like Jesus, even though they know they're falling far short. That's not hypocrisy. You're striving, you're growing by God's grace. Hypocrisy is saying that you are, you are doing something or you have arrived, and then while no one's looking, do something in completely and uh, totally different. Living a hypocritical life, that's what hypocrisy is. What does that do to the witness of the church? It, 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 it stifles it, doesn't it? It hinders the witness of the church. Will anyone believe what we've got to say if we're not living the things that we say are true and right? 
got to be very hard for folk to swallow that, right? I'm not too keen to go to a dealership and, and buy a, a vehicle from an individual who drives a car other than the one they're trying to sell me. Why are you driving that car? <laughs> if you're selling me this one, this, is there something wrong with this one perhaps? Uh, we, we as a Christian, you know, folk are not so much looking at, in the world and not so much looking at what the preacher preaches, but what the church, how the church lives. That's the testimony of the power of the gospel, not in the preacher's words. Sure, preaching has its place, but the life of the Christian, the life of the believer, yes, and even the life of the preacher needs to be congruent with the teachings, the truths that are promulgated and taught from the Word of God. And so, uh, so if we lie against the truth, if we're living a life of hypocrisy, that's going to hinder the effective witness of the church. And the devil doesn't mind that, does he? The devil doesn't mind that. Jesus said, you are, God said, you are my witnesses. But if we are testifying... Uh, our lives are testif- our lives are, uh, the lives we live are, are, are revealing uh, bad fruit uh, or not the fruit of the spirit, then we hinder our witness and effectiveness in the world. Let's uh, go on to Monday's lesson. This ties right in. Uh, two kinds of wisdom. Two kinds of wisdom. Uh, Paul, or rather James, uh, in chapter 2, verse 17, reveals to us that there are two types of faith. Do you remember... Remember that? One faith is a, work, is a faith that doesn't work, and it's what? Dead. It's a, it's a dead faith, but it's a faith nonetheless. That's one faith. Then he talks about a faith that actually works. Two different faiths. And here, in uh, James chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, he reveals that there are two types of wisdom. Two types of wisdom. Let's take a look here at verses 15 and 16, and let's continue on. This wisdom, what wisdom? The wisdom that, uh, that is... Uh, has bitter envy and self-seeking or selfish ambition in the heart. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is what? Three things, earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So here you have another type of wisdom. You've got worldly wisdom as opposed to heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom is applying the Word of God in humility, but here you've got a worldly wisdom that's envious and self-seeking, and that brings, according to verse 15, what does it bring? Verse 16, it brings confusion and and every evil practice is what one version of the Bible says, every evil practice. And, And you see this, you see this manifested in the way some people maneuver, in their shrewdness. Does that spirit prevail in the church? There are folk, and you know, it's a funny thing to think about. You know, here we are serving Jesus. The, the playing level is, uh, the, is, is, the playing field is leveled at the foot of the cross. We're all equal in the eyes of God. It's amazing that this kind of spirit of, of striving and fighting to, to reach the top or to, to be promoted to a more important position exists in the church. Um, you know, I, I, this is a beautiful church, and I haven't seen that spirit here, and that's wonderful. I'm not just saying that. I just don't see it. Now, it's interesting. James says that the wisdom, this particular wisdom, envy, self-seeking, self-promotion, is not descended from above, but it's three things. It's earthly. It has only this present life in view. 
doesn't think about eternal realities, doesn't think about the consequences of one's own actions. It's also sensual, or another way we could put that is unspiritual, unspiritual, satisfied with attaining and reaching its own desires, and then devilish. That's strong, isn't it? Who was the, I mean, someone mentioned it earlier on, who was, the, who was the one who brought envy and jealousy to planet earth? Lucifer, that's exactly right. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel chapter 28, look at that with me real quick. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 17, we have some scriptures here, we're going to get some folk to read here, if I can get through my notes. Ezekiel 28 and verse 17, talking about what happened, the tragic tale of the enemy, uh, this once shining cherub. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 17, it says about him that his heart, his heart, Lucifer's heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your what? Wisdom for the sake of your splendor, for the sake of your splendor. The devil was not satisfied with the wisdom that God had given him. And so he corrupted his wisdom. And how did he do that? by promoting himself, by pushing himself into the forefront. And ultimately, he said what? I will be like the Most High. I'm going to take God's throne. That's it. And he corrupted his wisdom. He wasn't satisfied with the wisdom God had given him. It's interesting when we look at these three things, earthly, sensual, and devilish, someone has suggested that these are the three enemies of man. These are the three enemies of man. Uh, The world all the allurements of the world, the bright colors, the things that attract us and draw us, Satan's attempt to draw us into his trap, self-seeking and, and, and satisfying our, our, our desires. There's also the flesh from within. Uh, the devil wouldn't be successful in tempting any of us if there wasn't something in us that would be drawn out after the temptation, would there? That's the carnal nature. That's an enemy. And then there's also, there's not only the world, the flesh, but there's also the, the devil, And the devil comes along and he seeks to entice and seeks to ensnare and trap us and lead us to eternal ruin. And so there you have the three enemies of man. And what does does this earthly, sensual, devilish wisdom produce? According to verse 15, it says it produces confusion. A better way of saying that would actually be restlessness. Restlessness. The psalmist prayed, Lord, lead me not to confusion. That's a good prayer to pray, isn't it? I'm, I'm pretty confused right now. Generally, generally, we get confused about decisions that we need to make <clears throat> and the best decision we need to make because we're seeking sometimes, well, it's, diff- it's difficult, but we're sometimes it's hard to make that decision because we're seeking our own interests first. But when we make the service of God supreme, perplexities will vanish and a plain path will be laid out before our feet. This type of earthly wisdom produces, uh, produces confusion or restlessness and everything that is evil or things that are good for nothing. It's not going to do you any good. not going to do you any good to promote yourself, to push your own self-interest, to to push others aside. not going to do you any good. It's good for nothing. Good for nothing. Let's go to uh, James now, uh, chapters 3, verses 17 and 18. Let's continue reading. But in contrast with this earthly, sensual or unspiritual, uh, devilish wisdom, But the wisdom that is from where? Above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
And so the wisdom from above is first what? Pure. And what is another way of saying pure? Untainted, right? Undefiled. That's right. Free from any selfish principles, any selfish pursuits, any selfish goals. It's first pure. That's heavenly wisdom. It's emptied, basically it's emptied itself of self. Remember John the Baptist, and you know, you read the story of John the Baptist. Here he had a following. Here he had a following. He was making a way, paving the way for the coming of the Messiah. And folk were coming to be baptized at his hand. And when Jesus came along the scene, what happened to John's following? It diminished. That's right, it went downhill. That's right. And as a matter of fact, what happened to John? He ended up being thrown into prison. And then the man lost his head. What did he say about his ministry? He said, I must, well, he must increase, I must decrease. That was his motto for life, giving Jesus the right of way, letting him rule the roost in his life. It didn't matter, it did matter for a time to John. He got a little discouraged, wondering whether Jesus really was the Messiah. I mean, and why would he leave me languishing here like this? The, the, uh, the result of following Jesus, uh, while it's a, a pleasure and while it's an abundant life, uh, the end of, of that life here on earth may not look so swell and so dandy and so nice, but we can be assured of an eternal reality, eternal life, where there'll be no death, no sorrow, no pain, none of that. So wisdom from above is first pure, free from selfish principles and goals. John the Baptist set his own personal ambitions aside and let Jesus Jesus take the helm, take the lead. Also, this wisdom is peaceable. Jesus talks about peacemakers in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. They avoid strife, but in the avoiding of strife, they don't sacrifice truth. They don't sacrifice truth. They're gentle. In other words, they're reasonable for for bearing under provocation, and they make allowance for other people's mistakes. Here's an interesting one too. Another trait of this heavenly wisdom is that they yield, willing to Yield. Yield to what? Yield to what? The will of God, sure, but also willing to yield their own preferences. Not their principles, but their preferences. A lot of squabbles and fights occur in the family, in the home, in the church, because someone wants their preference above another. It's better this way. Well, is it? Are you sure? Have you tried it this way? No, I haven't, but I know my way is the best way. And so fights occur and squabbles happen because someone is not willing to yield, not willing to yield, to surrender their preferences for somebody else's. And then it's also full of mercy and good fruits. It's without partiality and it's without hypocrisy. Someone's got 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Who's got that here? Right down here. All right, Aaron, thank you very much. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. I want to read Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2 first, talking about this heavenly wisdom. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are where? Above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And he goes on to say in verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. And you think about the disciples when Jesus was alive, they were clamoring for first place, weren't they? They were clamoring for first place. Who was going to sit on the right hand of Jesus when he established his new kingdom? Jesus' kingdom wasn't of this world. He He tried to teach them and tell them. And he reminds us today, his kingdom is not of this world. 
It's an eternal kingdom where we are content with the position that Christ entrusts to us. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Thank you, sir. The love which is of God suffers long and is kind. The love which is of God envies not. The love which is of God vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. The love which is of God never fails. Amen. Thank you so much. It's not provoked, thinks no evil, doesn't behave rudely, is not puffed up. That's, that's true love. That's biblical love. It doesn't think about itself first. All right, let's go to Tuesday. What causes conflicts and quarrels? This is Tuesday's lesson. James chapter 4, verse 1. We're jumping over now to the next chapter. What causes strife and quarrels? Chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure, that war in your members? And over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, let me read that for us here. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. Notice what Paul says about the same issue. He says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. They're talking about this struggle. There's a fight going on. The carnal nature is still striving for supremacy. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 6 says that we ought to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. It's not that our carnal natures are actually dead, but he says, reckon themselves to be dead. Sometimes they, they stri it strives for supremacy and mastery, wants to rear its ugly head from time to time. But the Spirit of Christ says, no, 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 not you first, others first. Let them have the right of way. You yield your preferences for someone else's preferences. That's, that's true love. Strife, wars and fights come from this desire to have your way, my way, first and foremost. Sounds like when you read verses 1, verse 1, it sounds like you're, you're, you're watching a basketball match or play, maybe playing racquetball or even watching the football match. Is there strife and fighting there? Well, yeah, there certainly is, isn't there? Why? Why? Because somebody wants to be what? Number one. And I'm not going to let you be number one. <laughs> not going to let you be number one. You know, it's funny, some uh, Christian schools, even sometimes our own, our own schools, just right after a Bible class, send the kids out and have a competitive game of basketball. Now, playing some basketball, having some fun is okay. When you get into some heavy competition, it actually is contrary, is it not, to the spirit of Christianity? When you think about it, it really is. Anyway, I won't get on that hobby horse. I'll roll right along here. Here you've got war. The war that's taking place here is a war against self. It's the war against self. That's the bottom line. Pr pride promotes strife. Pride wants recognition. It wants to be number one. The root cause of all division and confusion is self-interest. That's the root cause. When the satisfaction of self-interest, this is what someone wrote, when the satisfaction of self-interest is the governing principle of man, there is no end to quarrels. Each man sees in another the obstacle to full satisfaction of personal desire. So, in essence, we are the opposition, really. We are the opposition. We've got a fight to, 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 to wage. And, and uh, the fight is against self because it wants recognition. And what ends up happening inside of us that is expressed ends up affecting those around us. 
James 4, 2 and 3. Let's read on. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So what sinful desires are mentioned here and how are they affecting the church? What's one of them? Lust. That's one of the problems. Lust, something yearn for passionately. And because you cannot obtain that which you desire and that you yearn for passionately, you begin to hate, murder. I mean, that's where it leads, doesn't it? It surely does. Self-interest left ungoverned leads to the sin of covetousness and then it leads to hate, strife and fighting and also misplaced, misdirected faith. It says here in James chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, you have not because you ask not. In other words, these, the, the folk who are striving here have, not, uh, have been de- dependent upon their own efforts for whatever they decide instead of, in turn, coming to God, trusting in God to provide for them what is best for them. That's where strife comes. There's always, there's always a struggle when we're, we're saying, no, God, my way is better. And God's saying, no, I've got a much better way than you do. At that point, of course, we ought to yield, but when we don't yield, it creates this strife, this hate, this fighting, this misplaced faith. And you know what's, uh, what the antidote to this problem is? Prayer. Prayer. That's what the verse says. Prayer implies, when we come to God in prayer, prayer implies that we are seeking God's will above my will, above my preferences, you see. It says you have not, you receive not. The answer to our prayers is dependent upon not only the manner or the nature of the prayer, but also the spirit in which the prayer is offered, or wrong objectives or motives in prayer. We often ask for something and God says, well, that's not going to do you any good, so you're not going to get it, but I'll give you something far better, something that's going to serve my purpose for you, and, and to, in the end, we pray and hope it'll save you at last. God wants to help us. In Desire of Ages, page 330 and 31, we're told that it is the love of self that brings unrest. The love of self brings unrest. When we are born from above, the same mind will be in us that was in Jesus. The mind that led him to humble himself, that we might be saved, then we shall not be seeking the highest place. We shall sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of him. The love of self brings unrest. So at any time you're a little agitated, any time you're a little frustrated, just evaluate and see where the self is striving for recognition or supremacy because that's what she says, the love of self brings unrest. Well, in three minutes, we've got to do two days. Are you ready? Wednesday, friendship with the world. Let's continue the reading here. In, the, in this train of thought, striving for the mastery, trying to be number one, adulterers and adulteresses, verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So you become an adulterer, adulteress, enemy with God, friend friend with the world, when you adopt the, the, the methods and the modes and the motivations of the world, which is striving for recognition, striving for number one place. What is, why does James call his readers adulterers and adulteresses? Who's got Jeremiah 3 verse 6? We're going to have someone read that. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 6. If Okay, right back here. Wonderful. Thanks, Will. Terrific. 
the Lord said, the Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which by backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath, come, hath played the harlot. All right, thank you. We could read on to verse 10, but in essence, the problem God had with his people is that they were going up to these high mountains and every green tree, these places where they had uh, their altars to the worship of Baal. And they were being unfaithful to God, who was their true husband, you see. And so when James talks about folk being adulterers and adulteresses in this context, he's saying that the worldly wisdom, this wisdom that strives for supremacy and recognition, leads a Christian to becoming unfaithful to Christ, committing spiritual adultery, spiritual, becoming spiritual adulterers or adulteresses. The chief aim of the world is basically to satisfy the desire for personal gratification. But the gospel, the gospel calls us back to a program of service, of not being number one, but being subservient to being a servant. And there should be a marked difference between the attitudes and the practices of the church and the world. In Testimonies, Volume 5, page 81, we're told that the time is not far distant when the test will come upon every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. Now, you didn't think we'd be talking about this today in this context, did you? But notice what she goes on to say. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. Those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it hard, a hard matter to yield to the powers that be, rather than subject themselves to derision, insult, threatened imprisonment and death. Why? Because up to this point, their lives have all been about themselves. And there's no way they're going to be embarrassed or, have, or, or be treated this way because they're not used to being treated that way. They're not used to, they're not used to living a humble, meek life, serving others. They yield to the powers that be. The contest is between the commandments of God and the commandments of men. In this time, the gold will be separated from the dross in the church. So right now is our time, isn't it? Right now is our moment. Are we seeking to be number one or are we seeking to, to let Jesus be number one? On Thursday's lesson, and we want to read these verses together, we're going to close. Thursday's lesson, submission to God. Here is the solution, the solution to the problem. How to, how to get away from Stand apart from this worldly wisdom. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. There are 10 imperatives listed here that James gives us. Notice what they are. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Now, some folk are in the business of resisting the devil, which is point number two. But the first step is to always do what? Submit to God. You can't resist the devil without submitting yourself to God. You don't have the, the power, the strength to do that. But when you submit yourself to God, then you're able, by His grace, to resist the devil. And what will happen when, the, when you resist the devil? He's going to do what? He's going to run. He's going to flee from you. So there's number one. There's number two. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Number three, verse eight, draw near to God. Draw, press into God's presence with, with a humble heart. Press into God's presence. And what will God, God do? He will draw near to you like the prodigal son who was a great way off and his father came running. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. And he goes on to say the fourth imperative, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And then purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Verse 11, do not speak evil 
of one another, brethren. So there are your 10 imperatives. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw nigh to God. He'll draw nigh to you. And come to God with a truly contrite, repentant heart. God, I'm sorry that I sought to be number one. God, I'm sorry that I sought to put my interests above your interests, that I pushed someone out of the, uh, out of the way. I pushed you out of the way. When I, when I look at Jesus and I see that Jesus simply, simply conceded to the lot that was assigned him, I have no right to press my way into the forefront. I have no right to be number one. I'm sorry and let your, weep, let your laughter be turned to weeping. You're rejoicing to mourning. Come with a broken, contrite heart. Humble yourself. And then we come full circle. In verse 11, it says, Speak not evil against one another. That's heavenly. That's, uh, that's not heavenly wisdom. That's worldly wisdom, is it not? That's worldly wisdom. And it harkens back to the previous verses in James chapter 3 about taming the tongue. Truly, when God has our hearts, then He has our tongues. He has our feet. He has our hands. He has our entire conduct and our way of life. True wisdom reveals itself, friends, in a loving, a life of humble, loving words and loving actions. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want each day too. By God's grace, we can, we can have it. By God's grace, He'll keep doing that special work in our hearts and in our minds. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.